0: Welcome to the Rad Season Podcast. I'm Ollie Russell Cowan. If you're a previous listener, welcome back. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This week, I'm joined by the owner of Evolve Sports and the founder of Urban Sportfest, Matt Burgess. Matt grew up in Newcastle, Australia, into a sports-mad family. He studied law at Bond University and was fortunate enough to connect his career to sport. Matt started working at ASP, now known as the World Surf League, he stayed at WSL for 13 years and became Head of Sports Integrity. Bridging the gap between media, sports and entertainment, Matt's knowledge of law, rights holders and sports events, he founded the Athena, a golf concept developed while engaged with PGA. Matt later saw a gap in the market to bridge the world's best BMX athletes, action sports lifestyle, music and youth culture, and bring it to Australia and created Urban Sports Fest. Tune in to find out about Matt's background in law, sports, and entertainment. We're going to be talking about how he's going to be bringing the best BMX freestyle riders in the world to Australia later this year in December. And yeah, let's jump into it. Hey Matt, how are you? How's things? Hey, all good,
1: mate. Good. How are you?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Really well, thanks. Yeah, good to good to see you again after after France after fees and yeah. yeah, What's what's been happening since then?
1: Uh, lots. so we 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 just launched urban sport fest on on tuesday in australia um all around the world too we we saw some really fantastic traction built off that and and you know bringing a the first ever BMX freestyle world cup to australia is always going to create a bit of noise but um we're really looking forward to what else we can announce about the event in the next kind of 6 months as we lead up to it so Pretty excited. Pretty great to have it in market, and and really good to see the tickets rolling in, and 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 every all the interest kind of coming in from the um from all sorts of sectors to to get involved and figure out what it is first, but then also, um yeah. you know how they can get engaged with our target demo. So no, pretty excited, and uh, and that's 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 been the big the big news. Nice, man. and what's what's the feedback been like so far? It's been great. We, yeah, we've been getting lots of um lots of inquiries and and people who are just keen to kind of get involved and 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 figure out what it's about. And look, luckily for us, I think we offer something really different to the events landscape events landscape in Australia, because yep. we have a we have a really nice mix between um not non non exhibition action sport like like a competition that has kind of sustainability and a career path, but then Getting the music and the culture in there so intrinsically allows us to be, you know, presenting a pretty different product to to some others, and so we're really happy with that kind of unique place we've got in market. But um, but can't wait to yeah talk more about it with with all sorts of partners. And and now we now we're on the now we've got now remarket, so it's just exciting. Yeah.
0: Nice man. Well, I'd love to jump back into that. Um... A bit, bit, a bit further on, but yeah, I mean, like, if if it's okay with you, like, how how did how did this all begin? Like, how how did you get into sports like, initially? And yeah, what, what was this, we what we was
1: had a uh, yeah. Well, my my family's been involved in. Uh, I mean, we all love sports, so we 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 grew up playing sport. My dad was one of ten. My mum was one of five kids, and and so wow. and and dad and his family. Um, in particular, were were really um, talented sports people. We, you know, a lot of them played for you know national level, state level cricket, um, uh, and rugby, and so we had a, um, a pretty you know sport all consuming sports childhood. Really, every chance yeah. we got, we were out the backyard playing tennis or, or cricket or or, or, or footy or, or handball or whatever the hell we could figure out how to compete with each other on and and that that went all through the cousins so we had a heap of really kind of competitive cousins and and that was such a great um opportunity to to kind of you know figure out how we really kind of sow that seed for for understanding you know just how much you know sport can influence a positivity within in your lifestyle and I, I really latched onto that i think a lot of my family did um uh I had a couple of cousins play uh you know professional rugby and rugby league and 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 that's that's kind of allowed us to you know see that side of it as well pretty pretty early on on the other side of the fence from the athlete side so yeah it's really exciting um and what we've got is uh, uh you know we're in Newcastle so obviously kind of rugby league heartland and and mm-hmm. sports lovers generally but um, just a really saturated sports loving community and and we were we were really fortunate to grow up in that in that um, that area of the world and. And surf quite a lot obviously we've got great beaches down there so yeah it's um,
0: amazing ways around there yeah
1: it's really really nice down there so yeah it's really it's really great. just really fortunate to have that kind of upbringing where we can associate sports so easily to to what we what we love to do and fortunately for me i was able to connect that with my career um and was always really going to do that i was i was initially interested in um kind of the medical side of things my dad was a doctor my grandfather was a doctor my two brothers are doctors like we've got a, a lot of medical kind of um, professionals within our, our family. And, and so for me to go and do law uh, was, was a bit out there, but it was certainly a, a connection back to sport that was always going to happen. So um, that for me kind of closed the loop always is, is trying to find how we could get back to sport. And, and I, um, I just really love working in it. I love the fact that it brings communities together and creates, you know, really fantastic stories that people might not have known about, but, but they relate to because they understand sport and competition. And yep. and being able to kind of communicate that
0: through the work I'm doing even now um, has been has been great. And um, was that your plan when when you started to study law? You thought, you know, you could kind of take it back to sport and yeah. And, not really, and like, not so not look really. at the media side of sport and, and law or
1: yeah, it wasn't when I started. Um I, I did a sports law course at Bond Uni and and that was probably when it started. So I didn't really okay. know that there was a proper connection to sport when I started law um I, to be honest I did law off, off a whim I kind of got got lucky with a a scholarship to bond and and for me that was able, I was able to do a law degree in two and a half years and so for that reason I, was, I basically went and did it um yeah. uh, thinking it would be a fantastic just stepping stone to whatever I wanted to do not really thinking about sport but then once I got into to bond uni and, and we um there's a lecturer there called Jim Corkery who is a fantastic um mentor for me and and he he he, he spoke kind of very passionately all the time about how there's there's a lot of work to do from a legal perspective in sport and here's the here's kind of the gateway and here's what it looks like and and yeah. for me I, I i ran away from that first kind of um you know session or two of sports law uh understanding pretty much what i wanted to do if i if i continued to do law uh, if, if that was if that was the space that i was going to be in and fortunately i got a good opportunity straight out of uni so that's where i stayed Nice. And what, what
0: happened after you finished uni?
1: So at, um, I did uh, another lecturer there named Dennis Callinan, who's since he passed away a few years after that. Um, he was a really influential surfing um, uh, well, lawyer and a kind of surfing personality around Gold Coast, um, mm-hmm. and he was a lecturer at Bond Uni. So he and I worked together pretty closely on sports management um, courses okay. he was running, and he connected me into the ASP, uh, with Rabbit Bartholomew and Brody Carr, who was the CEO at the time, um, I went down for an interview. Literally on my way back to Newcastle, driving, I had we had the Tarago packed, and we were on the way back down the highway. And and we, um, I stopped. Was we this was... when they had
0: their office like on the top of Coolangatta? And like, yeah, over, like, well, yeah, okay.
1: yeah, that's it, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so they got. I still believe it's the world's best office. He's, he's, You're yeah. he's sitting there <laughs> looking unreal, at the huh? bank with an incredible view. Straight down Greenmount and over to Kira, and it's uh, it's it's. I worked there for a long time, probably a lot of reasons because of that view. (laughs) But we had um, we had uh, uh, you know that that kind of interview before I headed back, and I actually had a job lined up in Newcastle as a lawyer. But I'm not going to say no to working as a as a you know junior in in ASP at the time. It's just like a dream come true. So um, so yeah, I stayed on the Gold Coast and and then um, and and started working there as a as a junior and kind of worked my way through with a. Working part time for a law firm um, okay. uh, named Chalmers and Company, and that was run by a guy named Mal Chalmers, who's um, a fantastic uh, mentor of mine. Definitely one of one of kind of the father figures of my life, and and he's got a um, uh, he's 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 had a, an incredible influence, kind of on on the surfing community in Burleigh, and and that was allowed me to kind of really tap into you know properly who was influential there, as well as bring the the professional side of what I was doing into. Into ASP, which which didn't really have lawyers at, at all, you know, outside of some corporate guys who were helping them out with with the things they needed because they were a, they were not for profit at the time,
0: yeah. um, and they
1: really really just um, were trying to keep things moving as a as a rights holder more than an executor of rights, uh, like an events kind of manager or anything like that. Yeah. So that was um, that was really interesting because you got to see the the rights from the top down. You could see kind of all the international rights that ASP had as a surfing governing body. Mm-hmm. And then that rolled down into the event promoters, and we saw how the athletes tapped into those um what uh, what hadn't had a um aligned into the athlete rights from those those agreements as well. So it allowed me a fantastic perspective and one that I would have never got anywhere else in terms of you know how how close I was to being able to see
0: those rights play out internally within a sport yep. globally. and I mean there's, there's so many moving parts Were you sort of like as you, as you got more experience, you were sort of taking on different projects, you know, sort of coming from a junior and then like growing within the role or was it sort of like things were just changing in the organisation pretty quickly? And
1: um, Bit about both. They didn't change very quickly up front. The only change that we really saw uh, in those, for, what was it, 2006 I started with them. So um, probably not for about probably four years, uh, nothing really changed a heap. We were just very much okay. managing lots at the, at the international level. And so for me, it was more about getting my influence in a positive way in that sport. I'm trying to figure out how I could apply my legal skill set to something that would benefit the sport. Um, yeah. And that was kind of everyone's job, right? We, we were in there, you know, in a not-for-profit trying to make things better for the sport of surfing. And and not only is that a privilege, but it's it's an incredible exposure to for someone like myself who was just um, learning their trade because we could figure out I had other like people like Dennis and Mal who were there on like helping me figure out the legal side of what that would look like, but also yep. fantastic people um, like Rob Gerard and, and Fred Chilton who have been around, you know, those sport, those, that space for a long time, being able to work with them at a corporate level, both in the US and Australia, excuse me, and figure out, you know, how what I could, you know, pull from an Intel perspective into, into kind of my practice as well. So it was it was very much a, a, a learn like deep end for sure there was a lot of yep. situations that i was absolutely ill equipped for but um but it and definitely that imposter syndrome you know felt i was i was do i felt imposter syndrome for you know a long time but um but
0: in, but in what you, sort of way in kind of like dealing with the events or like uh, I'm also, legal dealing side or? With,
1: I'm also dealing with the stakeholders of the sport who had been there for a long time and you okay. were trying to either bring an influence, what you thought was a positive influence to the sport, but they, them having seen either things like what you're suggesting happen and fail or, or things that uh, they didn't believe because of their own situation they didn't think was right. Um, so there was a lot there where as the governing body of the sport, we're trying to represent new rules or new policy um, in particularly that people had to comply with contractually. Um, yeah. But we have to be really sensitive to the fact that only to the extent of our leverage could we push that. And so when we're talking to athletes, as an example, we're saying there's new rules coming into place in relation to, um, you know, one of the issues that came up really regularly and really heavily later on in, in that WSL role was the branding of hats on podium and trying to influence um, those kinds or sorry, trying to implement those kinds of rules – but not having the leverage as a not-for-profit um, or as a stakeholder that didn't really understand the event space properly because we weren't running events, We ha- there was a lot of back and forth. And so that imposter syndrome was really around, hey, look, we want to implement this as a sport um, and then get down to the implementation once it's all approved by uh, the board or whoever else that was needed and get to a situation where there's people who actually have to, who are influenced by that implementation and them telling you, what are you guys yeah. doing? This is this is not something that's going to work on the ground in Brazil or on the ground in, in France or in the ground in Tahiti or, you know, for various reasons, right, from local um, kind of local community issues right through to the laws and regulations that applied in that region. So yeah. there's a lot of different variables that you essentially had to be quite agile at dealing with, and, and that was probably the biggest skill set that I got um, I kind of pulled away from the entire role was making sure that, you know, while you've got a good idea and it might feel like it's right, um and you know there's only a certain amount of stakeholder engagement you can you can bring to a situation yeah. where you have to make a decision you've still got to be respectful of the fact that don't pretend it's always right you, you know figure out how you can the right policy might be implemented up front but where is there room to make sure you can adjust as you go forward and it's a progressive policy as opposed to a, a real kind of set stick in the sand and everyone's got to comply
0: yeah and it, and it 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 would be like you said, you know, like different like like local legislation depending on where where you like where the events held and yeah, all, all that sort of stuff, right? Yeah, we had
1: we had. A, I mean, it's it's as crazy as it sounds, right? You're going into you're trying to go in with policy or rules to, uh, um, you know, a lot of the time in the rule book, which we had a lot to do with uh, the commissioner's office, uh, which was um like Kieran Perel and Renata Hickel and Jesse Miley Dyler who's now, Jesse Miley Dyer, who's now VP and head of competition and events at WSL. We we all had to figure out um you know the best approach and that and that might have looked like um, a rule book change. But when it yeah. when it when we when we look at um rules that might have implemented or been in, implemented in a particular area that had laws and regulations that applied to it that meant it wasn't possible or or meant it was, you know, just just um, unreasonable and unsustainable. Yep. We had to be able to react, and and I think that's um, that's where kind of really engaged stakeholder engagement really benefits um, that situation. But we had, obviously, we had lawyers kind of around the world that we could work with, uh, but for me to try and figure out for a particular region whether there was laws that not only applied but laws that were um ones that uh, were actually impacted by decisions we were making was was you know it was a it was a complicated one i wouldn't say it was you know up the hard end of the scale because we just got an answer and and kind of rolled with it um yeah. but it certainly there was there was issues there that we had to deal with along the way that we didn't expect
0: and and with the with the rule book and sort of you know creating policies and things like that when when mm. did the anti doping um policy come in, come into play was that so when that was, the Olympic conversation started happening or was it before? When the what, sorry? When, when when the Olympic kind of conversations were starting, was it around then? No,
1: well before that. Um, okay. So uh, Brody and I started working on the anti-doping policy back in uh, probably 20, 2009. We were looking at, at ways we could um, bring it in because we knew that if we were going to be serious about um, competition integrity, that there had to be a policy of some description, and as an international yeah. governing body, we can't pretend that um, uh, uh, we can't pretend that the sport is going to be taken seriously, with particularly with the stigma that surfing had around recreational and illicit drugs. Yeah, that was a that was a pretty um, a really important policy play because we had to figure out we didn't have any obligation to to provide a water compliant policy. That that we weren't an Olympic sport, we didn't have. Um, you know, realistically, any governments like they are now that push that sort of policy onto events and event promoters.
0: They would make it mandatory, right? There wasn't that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they weren't mandatory at all for us. And so as a private entity, global governing body, we had to figure out what the right policy was for that time. Um, And what happened was that when we we looked at having uh, any doping policy, we had to figure out what was best for the sport. And so for me, presenting back to to the board and kind of doing some research together with kind of Rob Gerard, the US lawyer, and, and some others who are interested, we had to figure out um, what that policy looked like. And that didn't, we we, we were pushed hard to go water compliant. And that was just because it was the easy solution. Uh, we okay. pushed back on that because for us to try and implement a WADA compliant policy, and for the people who understand water compliance, they'll appreciate the fact that you cannot just pretend that you go and get a policy from the shelf, throw it into a sport like like particularly a wider a wider um, the re, the wider regulations, um, yep. and just pretend that that's going to be okay. And suddenly you get this big tick of approval, and the sport's okay with it. There, there we we had we went through um, probably two thousand nine ten. Um, we we went through a, a pretty significant period of of going back and forth on what that policy would look like, and mm-hmm. in the end we got through the policy we wanted, which was a hybrid where we okay. took the best pieces of the water policy and the water code and brought it down to a place that would work for surfing. And that meant that we had to look at things like um, uh, a separate illicit substances policy while we grew the education within illicit substances and then also the whereabouts policy, which for surfing is just like the world's hardest sport to to implement, right? You can't You get all of them, all of our top surfers at a moment's notice will drop everything and go to Fiji, go to a swell, go, go wherever it is. So a whereabouts policy on where they are yeah. over three months and pretending that that's realistic is not is a, we, we it just wasn't, it was something we pushed back on because realistically it it's not out, something that right? is going to help the sport. Right. So yeah. essentially what we did was come up with a hybrid um, and pull the best out of it. And then also we didn't believe that the way WADA were um, and they've changed the tune a little bit. Now they've actually come closer to what, what, the, the structure of our policies um, are, uh, well, the WCL policies are, but at the time they were very stringent on illicits being considered performance enhancing. For us, it didn't make any sense. What, why, if you take something recreational illicit, does that immediately mean it's performance enhancing? That's not the case with almost all of those substances. So, so we yeah. create our own version of that, which is, hey, if you take something, and it's considered performance enhancing. and absolutely goes into that realm of performance enhancing. But if it doesn't, it's treated as a brand and a rehabilitation issue and a social issue, which is fair for the athlete that's going through that. Because if they've they've been they've been um, um, consuming like smoking a lot of pot or or, or taking coke or, or doing whatever they're doing, um, and and it just it just it doesn't make sense to just throw the book at them and have them out of a sport that hasn't yeah. impacted their performance. It's the it's the wrong intent of that performance enhancing, you know, policy. Yeah, 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 exactly. So essentially what we did was, yeah, we we went for hybrid, we, we, we changed a few certain things. And, and like I said, Wada's policy physician in 2021 showed that the role the the road that we were on was the right one. Um, because they've they've they they reduced and they watered down um not watered down, it sounds like it's weaker, but they were smarter about how the application of a um of a uh of, of a, a substance uh positive that's an illicit or, or declared an illicit could be considered performance enhancing or not
0: yeah and like would you say like like during your time there was the biggest shift taking it from a non for profit and then moving it over to you know a for profit organization was that kind of i mean yeah, got to be yeah, <laughs> yeah that, was, that whole structure. Of, you would have been pretty busy during that time, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, there and... was there
1: was there was lawyers from both sides, kind of busy on that. We were all all looking at it pretty carefully and, and making sure that um, again, I mentioned stakeholder engagement before and how important that is. But but the stakeholder engagement for that particular process was was huge and it needed to be. It was a, yeah, it was the biggest um, corporate change that the sport had ever seen, and and for us to be able to to. To advise our members, being the the surfers and the brands at the time, that this was good for surfing, meant that we had to, you know, present um, uh, what was, and not even particularly me, but the, the management committee at the time, present something that made a lot of sense to the stakeholders, and it ended yeah. up being a positive one, and so and so the deal was done, and it was, uh, and it was moved from a, a not for profit Australian entity over to a, a um, a for-profit uh llc in america
0: yeah and and like how like how how, how was that whole transition of sort of then moving it like, like moving it over there i mean was there sort of like like did did the, did the team have to get bigger in like like internally and was there kind of more just just like uh, like there would be more stakeholders involved in it right like you were saying
1: big time yep yeah, we had um i mean we we had uh, and for me in particular right so i was I, I i was still coming you know um through as a as a lawyer you know had, having done a, a fair bit more work in entertainment at that point as well but but that none of that really prepared me for a corporate acquisition across like that so
0: yeah we were
1: um you know i was I was kind of helping support a lot of that and making sure that you know whatever you know deals we'd done were really clear for, um, but we had we had a, a, I think it was thirteen events at the time um, that that were all owned by, or, or sorry, owns the wrong word. They were all run by brands, and okay. so we essentially had to bring all those those rights back into um, central, back into HQ, and then yeah. and then and then run them ourselves. And that was the intent of the new organisation. So it was agreed that that would be the way it went. So there was a lot of work in in working with again stakeholder engagement, trying to make sure that. You know what the sport agreed, what the board agreed was best for the sport. We were able to implement, and that was a, a lot of you know um, uh, again more so kind of stakeholder engagement and and legal work. Yeah, but once you once you've got an understanding that it's best for the sport, the legal work is just a reflection of what's been agreed. So a lot of the hard work's done at that point.
0: Yeah, and and, and were you like uh, sort of working outside WSL like on like didn't like didn't 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 you set up your own company kind of sort of. At the end of that time, and you were kind of sort of doing doing different sort of consulting work for, for different sports organizations and things. And
1: yeah, it was before that actually. So um, in 2010, I started my my own law firm, um, okay. and it was a sport and entertainment law firm. So at the time, uh, I um, essentially the law firm I mentioned I was working for at the start uh, had um, merged with another one, and I wanted to do my own stuff, so I went out on my own um, and. And that's when I picked up uh, Fashion TV as a, okay. as a client. Actually, I actually already had them, but I was in house with Fashion TV here in Oceania uh, for a few years and um, worked closely with that team to bring an exclusive deal to this part of the world for Fashion TV, the, the TV oh, channel, Box. Right. Um, and we did a heap of work around the brand um, uh, kind of opportunities of what that looked mm-hmm. like for. For for that company, and there was a lot of opportunity. There was a, a fanta- it's a fantastic brand. It it had a lot going for it. It was very popular, but it was a it was a wallpaper channel. It's a it's a channel that you have on in the background. It's not a yeah unless you unless you are drunk at, at three a.m. and you're coming home and things are just on TV. It'll yeah. be like that, that'll be that'll be that'll be on you just kind of like on your phone or something kind of and that's just on the background, but or only the, in the hairdresser or in the in the bars. That's where it was big. But what we yeah. found was an opportunity to license that out for for parties, for um, all sorts of different merchandise, for for um, hair salon opportunities, all sorts of stuff, and use yeah. that brand in a way that hadn't been done before. So we were that was an exciting opportunity. But those that was an example of another client that I I'd, I'd still retain the surfing work with ASP at the time. Fashion TV was there, and then I had a few other clients as well, obviously from a small businesses to athletes to to um, yeah all sorts of things. Okay,
0: and then so uh, and that that was then kind of sort of looking within action sports as well as sort of outside as well, right? So it was was kind of like mixing, like like mixing both mixing media and
1: yeah, it was a it was a sports sports and entertainment practice, and so we we went from um, when we 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 practiced in all sorts of sports and and you know realistically um, the media and the sports deals are pretty similar. You're dealing with intellectual property, um, figuring out how they are valuable making sure they're protected, making sure that whatever warranties that you've got from either side about that IP are clear and you've got backup for it. Um, So that's the same across media as it is in sport. It's just a different type of rights. Um, And so, you know, essentially checking across those those, or working across those two, I didn't see a lot of difference. And to be honest, right now they're even closer because sport is entertainment. That is the way that people, um, after a certain level of participation, you get to that professional level of of something people want to consume in media. It becomes yep. entertaining. and so from that perspective, I think that's helped me uh, certainly navigate a lot of the broadcast deals that we were doing at, at WSL when we when I moved over to America, um, and and that became a, a pretty important part of how we started to look at the real potential for the sport over in America and, and globally from America, and then also um, also figure out how it is that we can engage and in, and in, in, leverage athlete rights Mm -hmm. to better the sport um which was obviously a negotiation that we handled um uh you know over a long period of time with the athletes and trying to get that athlete agreement right
0: and how would you say like it's kind of like now like now looking back and sort of all the all the work that you've done for um for for WSL and like for for other clients like looking at the differences between um action sports and then mainstream sports and Mm -hmm. sort of Bringing bringing those action sports forward, how how like w- like what would you say is kind of like you've kind of found from sort of how, how those sports can kind of can, can can grow, but in a kind of sustainable way, should we say? You know,
1: yeah, I think there's um I think there's a lot to be said about the well the um the digital strategy of of sports like action sports, and and I guess it's important to talk about. Which ones there because um, when yeah. we talk about you know dev- matured ones like surfing and skate who have their own professional tour and like downhill skateboarding he's got a fantastic professional tour around the world that's that's often overlooked. Um, these these big kind of more mature established pro tours and those mm-hmm. sports are very very good at engaging online community, yeah. um, and and it's because they've had to so. In surfing, for example, we could never go to terrestrial television and say, "Hey, block out two weeks of your channel because," and we'll tell you when the surfing is on. We don't have yeah. uh, a at two p.m. at Wimbledon on a Saturday when we will have two of the best players in the world playing. We yeah. have uh, Mother Nature that will dictate that over a period of time that we've selected based on swell season. So, yeah. so from that perspective, our the community of action sports had to. Exist and did exist very quickly uh, online, and what we saw was um, we actually, unfortunately, had you know one of the pioneers of of, of action sports broadcasting in Mano Azul, a Brazilian fellow who um, is is still to this day one of the happiest and, and and best people I've ever known. Worked with WSL right from the start, so he he was bringing digital audiences to surfing. From as early in terms of webcast as 1997, and okay, it's well. one of the earliest webcasts that's that's in sport, if not the earliest. So what what we got out of that was, and the reason he was able to do that was because of the demand to see it when you need to switch it on. Yeah, and that's what that's what surfing required and demanded of the media. So essentially, what we've seen is a um, a really highly engaged audience online because of that because they've needed to be to stay in touch with the sport they love. Now what we're seeing is that audience in those communities being something that the other sports want to see in their own. And so all of the lessons that we've seen about engaging with digital content and engaging audiences through connections online, whether that be social media or or, or other forms um, like, like purchasing and licensing of product, there's lessons to be learnt that were learnt very long ago in, in in action sport in particular surfing, that yeah. a lot of sports are now kind of coming, coming coming, and I feel like I feel like they're all, you know, well, if they're not
0: coming coming to digital right sort of what like I mean like sort of going more more so towards that side and um, would you say like golf I mean that that's that's a pretty sort of standout one that's something that needed a bit of a shake up and.
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing a little bit of golf at the moment, and there's um, there's certainly uh, a very good example right there where we have okay. a very established broadcast formula. It's mm-hmm. it's we will give you this time. Here's the product. We know that what you're looking at, everyone knows what they're going to get. Uh, there's nothing yeah. really changing in that space, um, outside of what kind of live Golf are, are, are trying to do. They've got their own kind of brand issues that they're working through, or, or you know a, a Rightly or wrongly, um, have associated with, and and what we've seen is is a um, is a challenge to the broadcast mm-hmm. space in golf, which is um, fresh, whether you like live or not, or 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 um or agree with what they do or not. They yeah. are um, they're changing the way golf broadcast looks, and and that's that's a positive for the sport. I think what we've seen with the last couple of days, where the PGA Tour have announced these significant changes to their structure. To the way the players are playing on tour in the US, in terms of the the three majors that they're looking to bring overseas in, um, I think it's twenty twenty four. That that's a that's a big shift. It was really the catalyst of that was the challenge, and and what we're what we're looking at there is a, a I think there's a lot of room to challenge because there's a broadcast of golf that hasn't changed in a long long time. And so we we've we kind of, you know, we've identified that as a as an opportunity a long time ago. And I say we's in like evolved sports looking at, at at golf and whether that's an opportunity or not. And I think that there's a heap of potential because the players, particularly the women, are fantastic ambassadors of the sport. And they've got yeah. incredible, incredible um ability to to storytell and incredible journeys because of, of not only who they are, but just the, the places they've had to go to earn their right to be on a tour in a, a really um, challenging male-dominated sport. That in yeah. itself was a fantastic story to kind of dig into. Um, and so there's a few products that, and, and, and concepts that we're running at the moment that um, could really speak to that, and, and I think that, um, that allows us to show that potential of, of what Action Sports has built as its own very close connection to their online community. Um mm-hmm. and make that available to another sport is is something that we're really working on because we think it's a huge value that that all sports want. But a lot of them don't know how. It's not their fault. They just haven't been in that space enough or feel like yep. it's within their comfort zone enough to really engage or put resources into.
0: And so and and I would be kind of looking at like equity from everything from pay to coverage and rights, you, know, you, you name it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think I think from a gender equity perspective um what's really important is that uh you know similar to what what we saw with surfing and we had you know significant challenges to the norm and we were just we just happened to be in the like in the microscope at the time in California but but the gender equity um argument is obviously rightfully strong and it has to be continued to be pushed and pursued by Everyone, um, yeah. but particularly where we saw, um, uh, you know, it's not just a equal prize check. That's the easy stuff, and that's yeah, a financial yeah. obligation that people can get to when the the resources uh, make it available. But what 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 is intrinsic about a particular sport, and what might have been um, perceived as okay or perceived as the right way to do things, um, can be looked at by an outsider and and. And clearly, be something that's um, that to new fans coming into the sport could could sway them the wrong way. And yeah. so, I think making sport available to all and making making um, opportunity available to both male and female equally is is the goal. And that as long as that's the guiding principle, then you, you're going to be fine. But there has yeah. to be strategy, and actual execution, and and the ability to look. From an outside in. And that might not be you. That might not be the governing body. That has to be people from outside saying, hey, look, if you're looking to grow the sport, who represents that? The fringe yeah. fans, yes, definitely, or the other fans of other competing sports. So get their take on how you look from a gender equity perspective. Because if you don't look like you're providing opportunities to the young girls or young boys in, for example, netball, then there has to be a way that you represent that better so that they can see a career path or a reason to stay engaged in that sport yeah. and make sure that we're looking at a, um, a really quality career path and joining the dots right from, I'm talking like participation, yeah, but content that you're creating, talent both behind the camera and in front of it, making sure that executives within there understand how important it is to be presenting to both sides of the gender, um, the gender aisle and that, that way you've got a sport that represents, that speaks to its maximum potential and not yeah. just half
0: yeah and then if, if they want it to grow obviously you know for future generations and like guys and girls coming through who are yeah. going to engage with the sport you know what i mean they kind of have to like they have to right and yeah,
1: yeah. and if you can if you can't create heroes at the top there's nothing for the next generation to look at and so yeah. for like the golf concept like the athena that we we've, we've built join, joins those dots where there's a generation above that we create heroes from because the game doesn't do it well enough itself it's for the next generation to see that and say, Hey, look, mom, dad, there's these fantastic players on TV. They look kind of like me. They're young as opposed to really old. And they, and, there's a, and they actually look like they're relatable. They actually yeah. look like like something I'd do. And that's a big thing of, of, you know, trying to make people on screen look relatable to the target demo you're after. Has, Allows them to engage, and if you don't, if you don't do that, all you're relying on is the attraction of the sports competition, and the mm-hmm. the kind of data that sits there as scores or the data that sits there as a really objective performance. That was good ten years ago. That's not good enough now. You can't continue to engage with even your core fans if you don't provide the depth. And we we've seen that with things like F1 Drive to Survive and and what WCL is doing now with their Make or Break series. Um, you know, fantastic insight into what. Um, athletes are the journey they go through and the feelings they have of being human around sport and being being able to project that onto camera is a skill in itself but the production team have to be good at that and the the sport has to be good at that which i think is where we're seeing those skill sets switching from marketing teams in sports and that's a good thing
0: which which has kind of been the case in the past where they kind of portray them as being you know these sort of robots and you know they're like they're not human everyone's kind of put on this on this pedestal and yeah it's good that it's relatable and everyone is you know going through these emotions right no matter if they're a professional athlete or not or
1: yeah which which is kind of um you know to a certain extent it's it's negative in that there's a there's a there's a professionalism that people kind of hide behind and they say to their athletes you got to be professional like you can't go out and tell the camera that you were upset about losing you've got to be." really con- congratulatory of the opponent. You've got to say, you know, credit to the boys because it was a really, you know, really strong, hard-fought hard fought match and, you know, it was a game of two halves and the cliches come out because none of them yeah. have enough media training to be, you know, a- authentic about what they're told to be doing. But if if they were, if but there's, there's a long, particularly having worked in that discipline space for sport where we're judging where that professional line is. We did that for a long time. I did that for a long time surfing. We There's a lot of room to move. You know, you can yeah. be professional and still be emotional. You can be professional and still be angry at the fact that you didn't get a line call or you got something wrong in the game and you stuffed something up. That's the stuff that people relate to because the people who love the sport are generally trying to play it. And if they yeah. sh- you show that you're emotional about sucking at the sport in one particular game or also the opposite, being really, really happy and passionate about winning and celebrating with your friends, as opposed to saying, "Oh, you know, I just really like to congratulate the other side." Because, oh my God, like you just the, the robots, like you mentioned, um, uh, that that kind of way that they speak uh, just you know turns people off, and and you want to turn people into and, and engage them in 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 why those why the sport is so great. You can't do that with with robots coming off the park or even on the field.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. And um, uh, with Urban Sports Fest kind of now mm. got, coming full circle, so kind of um, with that coming up, um, what what was the kind of like the 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 reasoning behind sort of putting on an event like this over over in Australia? And yeah, like did you sort of see an opportunity? where you thought you can kind of you know have have BMX and skate and kind of have it in this format. And
1: yeah, for sure. Um, so consolidating what these action sports um who is in the sports, like the culture within them, um, the sports themselves, uh, consolidating those rights is a yeah. huge opportunity that I think is is sitting there. Um, mainly because there's a community out there who understand those sports and a really engaged social community, um, a really tightly knit action sports community, but also beyond that um, a lifestyle sports community and that 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 includes you know really quality, Um, You know competitions like sport climbing, as an example, right? That's the argument around what's action sports or not. Doesn't really matter if you essentially the way I look at it is is the sports, the action and lifestyle sports sector is built off lifestyle and culture first. So they they're doing it every afternoon because they love it. They're doing it with their friends because they love it because they get to connect with their mates and. And when you have that first, the competition becomes a, sec, a significantly second priority. Um, yeah. And so, what I what what we saw was was how that community and again another reason probably a lesson learning from action sports over to more traditional ones is is the fact that that community can um, can 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 be so tight and then celebrate themselves and their friends when they're winning. And we saw that at the Olympics. So yeah. the the idea is that we can really build. A consolidation of those cultures and celebrate those sports as they are, without even starting to talk about the Olympics yet, and then bring an event together in a space together where they can they can do that safely and with friends and family, um, and see the heroes who are incredibly good, the world's best at the sport they love, and it's and it's not because they want to be good at competitions because they just love BMX riding. That afternoon at the, at the at the park, and they want to come and see the best in the world. Same yeah. with skateboarding, same with surfing, and and I think what we see there is a really different, a, different, a big difference to the um to the other traditional sports, which is competition first. Absolutely, there's communities built around it, but it's it's kind of a primary primarily competition first um, sport. And I yeah. want to be really good at a good at a sport, and then it's the cultures built from that. But um, I think my my incentive around Urban Sport Fest is essentially. I see a huge opportunity in making sure we can provide a place for these competitions and sports to celebrate the cultures that they represent, and we've got a lot of growing to do, but right up front we've got a fantastic opportunity, which is why we did it in the public funding that's available now from the Olympics stimulus, and Mm -hmm. everyone saw the fantastic energy that that you get out of these sports, and it brought the Olympics back to life. So we have that now from a public, particularly in Australia, public perspective. And then, and also, we've got a um, from the private sector. We've got the brands and the athletes who have held these sports up for so long on their own back, able to provide and get return in a, an event space, which is the whole idea of sponsorship. Obviously, they get involved. We're able to deliver a really tangible benefit back to them as an event. Um, and so, I feel like the time's right for for that kind of thing. And and you know, the event it's, the event itself came out of a pretty significant. Um, Opportunity that was uh, that was built off a strategy for 2032 Olympics that we did last okay. year. So, so you know, there's a there's a lot of a, a really kind of nice alignment there to 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 make sure that there's a um, a really tangible return to high performance community yep. and um and and um and events like world class events into 2032. So the, there's a, there's definitely a long term strategy there, and and
0: and they'd be planning in place already. Then like like you were saying, like. There's there's yep. a there's a whole sort of runway for the next ten years, kind of leading into Brisbane, and
1: yeah, yeah. There's a there's a full a full strategy from a Queensland Academy of Sport perspective and a 2032 Brisbane perspective. That is, hey, we need to look at the next ten years and figure out what we can do. Um, I'm not engaged directly by by those. I, I I I'm building an event that certainly satisfies that. Um, and we've aligned really well with with that strategy because we we drafted it, but now yeah. we've got we're able to implement it for the for the implement the first part of that step. So there's a absolutely ten years now we have to build a really quality runway of world class events, high performance opportunity and ability for the community that the the real community of these sports and not just a manufactured Olympic related one at all. It's not about that, but yeah. provide the really authentic community to come together. And um and celebrate these sports that they love so much and and have some fun doing it. That's why the music's there. You know what?
0: Yeah, I was going to say, like with the whole sort of cultural ele- element, like the music's massive, right? So kind of having yeah. that there and bringing that. Yeah, in.
1: it's. A, it's a, I don't think you can. I don't think you can have a, a proper sports event like we're looking at without an equal, equally important music element. So there's a yeah. sports program and a music program that we're going to be marketing absolutely equally. Um, and the benefit is we're going to have you know some really quality career pathway opportunities outside of that for the sports side with you know with potential olympic inclusion as a as a as um as a uh, qualifier or or you know however that kind of all falls out we we're, we're definitely in the right seat to be saying hey look if we want opportunities for our kids in australia um we are building world class
0: opportunities and this is it so come along yeah nice cool man and if people want to find out um more more about urban sports fest and yeah like how 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 can they kind of
1: yeah, you can find the, the website's urbansportfest.com. Uh, we've got the uh, obviously Instagram and, and Facebook at Urban Sport Fest. And um, look, we're really excited to kind of be bringing in a really new product to market from an event perspective and an engagement perspective to that Gen Z audience and their family. So um, if anyone's got any questions or, or would love to just get in touch about it, then by all means shoot us a, a DM on social through those accounts and we will handle that and get back to you, uh, yeah, straight away. Awesome.
0: Cool, Matt. Uh, well, thanks so much for your time, man. And yeah, I've definitely got to get over to the Gold Coast. Uh, yeah. Come come December and check it out. And yeah. Yeah, fantastic, to mate. Go for over there.
1: Yeah, something looking good at the moment. So that'll be good. Cool, <laughs> Thanks, mate. Good to speak to you. It.
0: Thanks for listening. As always, you can find show notes and links to resources on radseason.com slash magazine. Hit us up on Instagram at Rad Season Podcast. You can follow me on Ollie Russell Cowan. Until next time, thanks for listening.